In 2010, a researcher named Brene Brown gave a TED Talk in Houston. And her subject in that talk was the deep desire that we have for connection, the desire to be known, and the shame and the fear that so often prevents us from making those connections. And what she said there obviously struck a chord with people because her talk became a viral phenomenon. Since its airing, it has been watched over more than 40 million times. It was so good that it was written about in major newspapers and magazines, and it got her interviews on talk shows like Oprah and Ellen DeGeneres. And I've been, I, I watched that talk a couple of years ago, and I've been thinking about it again this week as I was preparing my sermon. And it's not just because I'm hoping that this sermon becomes a viral hit that gets me on Ellen. Uh, if Ellen calls, I will take the interview. Um, but the real reason that I was thinking about Brene Brown's talk is because what she has to say there, what connected with people so much, is in many ways deeply related to the message that we read in our psalm this morning, Psalm 139. That psalm and Brene Brown, both of them, talk about the deep desire that is common to each and every one of us to be known, to be truly known. And they both talk about the feeling of vulnerability, about the feeling of being exposed before the eyes of others. But although they both talk about the same need, there's a significant difference between them. And it's not just that one talks about God and the other doesn't. No, the real difference between them lies in the kind of hope that they have to offer to us. Because the reason that millions of people have watched Brene Brown's video isn't just that she alerts us to our disconnection from one another, or that she diagnoses what it is that's keeping us from connecting with other people by talking about our shame and our fear of rejection, no, what draws people to watch that video is that she has a message of hope to offer, a way out of the loneliness, a way into a life filled with connection and belonging and joy. And what is that way? What is the secret to living this life of connection, to really being known? Well, according to Brene Brown, the answer to that question is acceptance. You have to learn to accept that you are imperfect. Accept that you make mistakes. Accept that you have faults, that you have failures. And yet, nevertheless, also accept that you are someone who is worthy of being known. Someone who is worthy of being loved. Someone who is worthy of the time and attention of others. Only when you accept both of these she says, will you find the courage that you need to actually be vulnerable and open up with others? And this is certainly a message of hope, and there's a lot of truth in it. But there's also a significant difference between what she's talking about here and what we find in the psalm. For the message of the psalm isn't that we need to find the courage to be vulnerable with other people but rather that we, in fact, already are vulnerable. That whether we like it or not, our lives have been laid bare 
and we ourselves live constantly exposed before the eyes of a watching God. And the psalm doesn't tell us simply to accept ourselves with all of our faults and our failures and our all-too-human imperfections. Instead, it reminds us that the question of whether we find ourselves acceptable is really a matter of little importance. For what really matters is whether the judge of all the earth, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hid, whether he deems us acceptable or not. But that doesn't mean that this psalm is without hope. It's actually a psalm that carries carries this message of great hope, that tells us that we are, in fact, known, that we are loved, and that because of that, we can actually be free to be vulnerable without fear of shame or without fear of rejection. You can find the text of this psalm printed in your bulletin, or if you'd prefer, it's in the prayer book in your pew on page 454. The theme of the psalm is immediately apparent in the opening line. You have searched me out, O Lord, and know me. I wonder if that's a welcome thought for you, that God has searched you out and known you, that he knows you're sitting down and you're rising up, that he sees your thoughts from afar, that he has examined every path you have taken and every choice you've made along the way. If you're anything like me, this is probably not something you give a lot of thought to one way or another as you go about your daily uh, routine. Maybe you wonder sometimes about just how much your supervisor at work knows about your sitting down and your rising up. Or maybe you sometimes wonder just how many of your thoughts are being tracked by big data companies from afar every time you use your phone. But you probably give little thought to the fact that every minute of your day is being conducted in the presence of and before the sight of a living God. That's something we easily forget. And it's something we need to be constantly reminded of. Charles Spurgeon, who's the great English preacher, once said that the primary purpose of this psalm, Psalm 139, is to do just that, to remind us, to warn us, as he put it, against that practical atheism, which ignores the presence of God and so makes shipwreck of the soul. Well, whoever wrote this psalm is certainly not ignoring the presence of God. He is deeply and intimately aware of God's constant and penetrating knowledge of him. And at first, it doesn't seem like he's terribly comforted by that fact. If you look at verse 4, the psalmist says that God's knowledge has enclosed him. It's boxed him in. One scholar translates the Hebrew of this verse as, You have besieged me behind and before, and you've placed your palm over me. The imagery that he's getting at here is of someone cupping their hand and trapping something like a bug on a table. And the problem is that the psalmist is the bug and he feels trapped and there's nowhere to go. Because after all, where is there to flee from God's presence? How can you escape? That's the question he brings up in verse six. Where shall I go then from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And the answer he gives is 
nowhere. If I climb up to heaven, you were there. If I make my bed in the grave, you were there also. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, that's a strange phrase, taking the wings of the morning, but it's actually a really striking poetic image. He's imagining a sun rising at dawn, just eclipsing the horizon line of an ocean. And the wings of the morning are the first rays of that sun as they break out and they shoot forth across the ocean in either direction. And what he's imagining here is that even if somehow I could grab hold of one of those rays and be dragged at the speed of light to the uttermost parts of the sea, beyond wherever his ancient maps had charted, even then I cannot escape God's presence. Even there I will be known and I will be seen. But then if you look in the next verse, verse 9, something seems to change. There's this transition that takes place. All of a sudden, God's presence is no longer something to be escaped, but something to be cherished. Now he talks about God's hand not as trapping him, but as leading and holding him. Even there shall your hand lead me, he says and your right hand shall hold me. This is a pretty dramatic shift. And you have to ask, what's happened? What's changed? Why has all of a sudden he gone from experiencing the presence of God as something to be feared, something to be escaped? And now he experiences it as a reason for comfort and hope. And we can ask this about the psalmist, of course, but we can also ask it about ourselves. Because we too live in the inescapable presence of God. We too stand before his piercing gaze. And that can be a very unsettling thought. In fact, I would venture to say that if you are not at least a little unsettled by the idea that your every action and every thought lies naked and visible before God, that he is intimately aware of your most closely guarded secrets, then you know either very little about God or very little about yourself. For God is holy and we are not. And as the book of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing for a sinful and unholy person to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's no wonder that when people meet God in the Bible face to face, they tend to respond with the same two negative emotions that Brene Brown says we all associate with this dreaded experience of being exposed and vulnerable. They respond with shame and with fear. Now, of course, in our relationships with other people, we find ways to control this shame and fear. And we do it by regulating what we let people know about us, what they see. We put only our best and happiest pictures of us and our family up on Facebook and Instagram. If you look at our Facebook and Instagram, we all just look so lovely and happy all the time. You know, or we go around and we brag about all of our kids' accomplishments and we hide their failures. Or when we come to church and people say, good morning, how are you doing? And we quickly say, I'm great, how are you? Deflecting and hoping they won't ask any intrusive questions. When I was in grad school, we had this thing that we like to talk about called imposter syndrome. And all the doctoral students had it. And it was this deep feeling of insecurity, this lingering sense that, even if you'd gotten into a top program 
And even if your research and your writing were being praised by the faculty you were working with, deep down you knew, you knew that you weren't really that smart. You knew that everyone else around you knew more than you and they read more than you. And so you're just constantly finding ways to direct conversations toward things you actually know about, you know? Or if something comes up and you've actually read something, especially something obscure about it, you make sure you pipe up and share what you've read. Anything to be found out for who you think you really are. Anything to avoid the shame of being discovered to be an intellectual fraud. It's the same everywhere. Everybody has their strategies for guarding what they let people know and see about them. Their strategies for coping with the shame that they feel, with the fear that they have that if only people really knew, then they would reject me. But you can't do that with God, can you? And so maybe that's why the psalmist talks about wanting to flee and get away from God's presence because he feels so vulnerable and exposed all the time. But then something changes in verse nine. What is it that changes? Has he finally found the courage to be vulnerable, to just accept himself warts and all as Brene Brown recommends? No. What changes for the psalmist is that he begins to reflect not only on the fact that God knows him, but how God knows him. Look what he says in verse 12. For you yourself made my inmost parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. What the psalmist is recognizing here is that the same God whose presence he is constantly experiencing, the God who knows him in an uncomfortable way, this is the same God who has lovingly and carefully fashioned him in his very person. Your eyes beheld my substance while I was yet unformed. And in your book were all my members written. These are the words of someone who understands that he's not just seen by God, but that he belongs to God, that his life has been claimed by God, that he is loved by God. And that's what makes all the difference. Because it's one thing to be loved by someone who doesn't really know you, or to be known by someone who gets to know you and then doesn't really care for you. It's something else altogether when you are loved by someone who really and truly knows you, the real you. And at its heart, that's what the message of the gospel is all about, isn't it? That's what the good news is. Not that we've somehow found a way to convince God that we're really better people than we are. Not that God has just, you know, kind of learned to lower his standards and accept our failings and our faults and our imperfections. No, the message of the gospel is that God sees us, that he is intimately aware of the fears and the insecurities and the aspects of ourselves that we so carefully hide and guard from other people, that he knows us, not as we present ourselves to the outside world, but he knows us for what we really are, and yet that he has chosen to love us all the same. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says this really wonderful thing. He says, now in the time of this mortal life, we see in a mirror, but dimly. But when the time of our perfection comes, then he says, we will see God face to face. And then we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. 
The good news of the gospel is that you and I, we have been fully known. Known in a way that we did not show ourselves or expose ourselves, but we have been known all the same. And yet, that God has accepted us and that God has loved us. Elsewhere, Paul goes on to say that through faith, we have actually now become clothed with Jesus Christ. And that is now how God knows us. That is how God sees us. Not just in our sin and unholiness, but as those who have been united by faith to the person of his beloved son. That is how God knows us. I wonder what would happen if we really believed that. How would it change the way you see yourself? How would it change the way that you interact with people around you? I can tell you one thing it would do. It would go a long way to help you overcome those crippling feelings of shame and fear that, as Brene Brown rightly says, are keeping us from really being vulnerable and connected with one another. Because, after all, what would be left to be afraid of? Being found out to be who you really are? Well, too late. God knows. Being rejected? Well, you've already been accepted in love as one who has been adopted as his child, united to the person of his son. No, if we really believe that we have been searched and known, that nothing we do or think is hidden from God's sight, and yet that God has chosen to love us and to welcome us into his family, then, then we will have nothing to fear. And that's why, as Paul goes on to say in another letter, we as Christians can actually bear one another's burdens. It's why the church can be a place of real vulnerability and real belonging, because the church is filled with a bunch of people who know that they are, have already been exposed, that there's nothing they can hide, that they've already been searched and known. And now because of that, and because they've been accepted in Christ, that they can actually let down their guard. I think of my parents' hometown church. Uh, they attend a small community church in our hometown. And several years ago, one of the prominent lay leaders in their church, I'll call him James, well, James began to have a serious problem with alcohol abuse. It wasn't the first time he'd struggled with an addiction. Years earlier, um, he had actually been a pharmacist and had lost his pharmaceutical license because he'd developed an addiction to opiates and he'd been stealing from his pharmacy for his own supplies. But that was all in the past, you know, and he'd kind of gone out of that and he was able to talk about it as a past experience and how God had brought him out. And now, now he was this upstanding leader in their church. So when he started to become an alcoholic, James and his wife, they chose to hide it, not tell anybody about it because they were ashamed and they didn't know how people would respond. But then after a while, they started to feel like they were leading this double life you know, presenting themselves one way to people on Sunday morning or in their small group. But really, in private and at home, they knew that their lives were being dominated by this ongoing struggle that no one knew anything about. And they hated that feeling. And so eventually, they chose to go to the other leaders of the church and open up about it. And when they opened themselves up, they found not judgment or rejection. They found compassion and they found companionship. 
Because the other leaders of the church rallied around them and they prayed for them and they loved them and they supported them as they sought the help they needed. And that's just one of many examples of similar stories from their church. Their church is a place that has this culture of vulnerability, which doesn't mean that people are always getting up on Sunday morning, you know, and airing out the worst things they've done during the week to each other. But it does mean that there's a culture, there's a kind of expectation that if you are going through something, if your marriage is in crisis, or if you have developed an addiction, or if you're struggling with depression, or whatever it might be, that you wouldn't keep it to yourself, that you wouldn't have to hide it, but that you would find other church members to talk to. Because that's what Christians do. Because Christians are people who know themselves as those who have already been searched and known. Nothing in our life, no aspect of ourselves is hidden from God. Nothing has not already been exposed. And yet he has loved and accepted us all the same as those who are his adopted children, united by faith to the person of his son. And because of that, we've been set free, free from shame, free from the fear of rejection, free to be vulnerable with one another and actually bear one another's burdens. I pray that, that that's something that we would really believe here at Christ Church, that we would own this psalm as our own, and I pray that we would live accordingly. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.